Nathaniel, Madame, Rabbi Brodo, friends, thank you very much for that awe-inspiring introduction and prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> but uh, it's great to be here and I think actually we should pay tribute to UCL because I think it was the first place in Britain where Jews could get degrees. Absolutely extraordinary thing that it took until 1828, I think it was 1828? 26. Oh, sorry, it took kings until 1828 to realize. Anyway, it's great to be with you to wish you all a Kashavasamaya to thank you all for being here and for standing up for Jewish life on campus. And I'm very loath to add this little footnote, Nathaniel, to your introduction, but since it's the time for it, I may as well say it, because it was in uh, 2005 that Her Majesty was kind enough to, to actually uh, make me a sir. And uh, the, 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 the Buckingham Palace is incredibly sensitive to diplomatic issues. And I'm sure you know uh, you better be warned, because if you ever get to be a knight or a dame, you may need to know this, that when the queen or whoever it is comes to lay the sword on your shoulder, you have to kneel. Now, you will know from Purim that Jews, like Mordor, we don't kneel before anyone except Hashem alone. And this therefore presents a, presented a serious diplomatic issue in Buckingham Palace uh, as to what to do, because... You have to kneel, but I had to explain to them, I can't kneel. And uh, so they came up with this thing. Um, I'm sure they've still got it. It's like, a, it's like a, bit, a thing like this on wheels. So they wheeled up this little railing that I could lean on and incline 10 to 15 degrees away from the perpendicular thus inclining towards Her Majesty without actually kneeling. And when the great event came, the, they did actually wheel in this thing, and I did incline, and she did rest her sword on my shoulder, but she did say, in an undertone to Prince Philip, tell me, why is this night different from <laughs> Enough of such badinage. She wanted me to speak about the meaning of freedom and how it relates to Pesach. So what I want to do, if I may, is share with you what I think is kind of a fascinating intellectual journey into the Jewish concept of freedom, which turns out to be quite a profound little journey of the mind that I want to share with you. But let me just begin at the beginning, because we've got to begin to begin somewhere. And I want to begin with this concept of what is the Jewish way of telling a story. On Pesach, we tell the story of our people. Is there a Jewish way of telling a story? And the short answer is, I think there is. And it's very interesting. Anyone know? I mean, work out all the sad and tragic things that have happened to our nation from exile and slavery in Egypt, all the way through to the Holocaust and beyond. Lots and lots of bad things happened, 
What is the Hebrew word for tragedy? Do we have any Israelis here? What is the Hebrew word for tragedy? What? Tragedia. Exactly. Tragedia is the Hebrew word for tragedy. Why? Because there's no Hebrew word for tragedy. There is none. Which is extraordinary, considering all the tough stuff that happened to us. We have words for bad things that happen called ason, catastrophe. We have korban, which means destruction. But tragedy, in that technical Greek sense of, you know, Aeschylus and Sophocles, and we don't have a word for that. And there is a reason for that, because tragedy is not the Jewish way of telling a story. Tragedy has to do with the Greek idea that somehow or other some flaw in the hero's character will lead inevitably to some bad outcome. And that's built on the, what the Greeks call moira or ananke, inexorable, implacable, blind fate. You can't defeat fate. If you have this flaw in your character, bad things are going to happen, especially if your name is Oedipus. But one way or another, bad things are going to happen. Jews didn't have a word for tragedy in that Greek sense, despite all the tragic things that happened to them. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because there's a Jewish way of telling the story. And do you have source one? Here it is. It's a Mishnah. Can you see it? It says, The Jewish way of telling the story is how we do it in the Haggadah, is to begin with the bad news and end with the good news. So we begin with the bad news, exile, with the slavery, and so on and so forth, but we end with, we all went free in the end. So the Jewish way of telling this story is always a story of hope. Are you with me? Because however bad the beginning, we never end the story until we have a positive note. However, you will see in this source, and I'm not going to take you too much through the beginning of this, it might take too long, but if you have a look at the source, you will see that there are two <coughs> teachers, Rav and Shmuel, from the third century, who disagreed as to how to tell the story on Pesach. What's the bad news and what's the good news? Rav says, can you see there, student source one? Rav Amar, Nitchila Avdei Avokinulim, or Avodad Kokavim, Originally, our ancestors were idolaters, but now God has drawn us close to him. And Shmuel says, Avonim Hayim. Shmuel says, We were slaves in Egypt and God brought us there. Which do we do, actually? In Haggadah. We do both. Exactly. Two rabbis argue, well, let's do both. Okay, that is the Jewish way of stopping two rabbis arguing. <laughs> Never worked. So we do both. We begin by saying, immediately after the Manishtana, we begin by saying, Israel, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and then God took us out. And then at the end of all that, we say, Initially, our ancestors were idolaters. Terah was the father of Abraham, and he served other gods, etc., etc. Okay? So we have these two views, Rav and Shmuel, as to how to tell the story on this. However, one of them is very clear. Which, which is the obvious? Who makes more sense to you? 
surely makes obvious sense. We were slaves to Pharaoh, God took us out. And that's the story of, of Pesach. Exile, enslavement, exodus. Makes sense. However, if you have a careful look in Bula, uh, I think it's called four and five. Look at five, it's in the English, it's easy. The quote that Rav brings, can you see it's about third line down in the English, yeah? This is Joshua making a speech at the end of his life. It's right in the last chapter of the book of Joshua. He says, long ago your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants of the island, etc., etc. Understand, according to Shmuel, according to Rav, the story of the Exodus begins even before Abraham. And it ends even after Moses, because this is in the days of Joshua, his successor. It's a huge panoramic story. And what's more, it's not a story of, um, of slavery and freedom. It's a story of idolatry and then monotheism. So what on earth is Rav telling us about? Okay? Why does Rav say what he says? Okay? I just want you to park that question because it's an important question. And now let me ask you the simple, obvious question. What is the Hebrew word for freedom? Kairos. Kairos? Right? That makes sense? Everyone agree? Everyone agree? Kairos is the Hebrew for freedom. <coughs> God brought us out. Me'avdut, lecherut, from slavery to freedom. What's the name we give Pesach? Zman, cherutenu, the festival of our freedom. And uh, how do we begin? This is the bread of affliction. Today we're slaves. Next year we'll be free. Okay? The Hebrew for freedom is cherut. Wrong. The word cherut does not appear even once in the whole of Tanakh. In the whole of the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't appear. This is what I want us to understand. How come post-biblical Judaism invented a new word for freedom that doesn't exist in the whole of the biblical literature? Anyone know what the word charut means? It's the only time this root, chet, resh, taf, appears in the whole of Tanakh. Do you remember, anyone know where Charut appears in the Bible? Charut The first set of tablets that Moses gave. Moses was as good with tablets as I am with washing up, as you know he dropped it. <laughs> Never even got to the dishwasher. But I mean, so, and, and the Torah says about those first luchot, the tablets for the work of God, the writing of the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. The word charut is the only time this root appears in the whole of the night and means engraved. Right? There is a word charet with a tet instead of a taf. Does anyone know where that appears in the Bible? Charet? Golden calf, anyone? Aaron took the 
into, into into the gold and carved it using a cherub, a an engraving tool. It is possible that do you remember when Moses starts bringing the plagues and all the Egyptian magicians start trying to do the same? Watch Flamiels, you know. I mean, oh, you can turn water to blood. So can the beat, you know. If they can turn the blood back into water, then that'd be sensible. But they're actually only succeeding in making things worse. What is the Hebrew for those magicians? They're called Khartoumeh Mitzrayim. And it may well be that that word Khartoumeh comes from the same Hebrew root. They were the people who could engrave hieroglyphics and read those engravings, because they were, they were limited. So it turns out that the word Harut, Harut doesn't appear in Tanakh at all. But a similar word appears meaning to engrave. Okay? And what has that got to do with freedom? Tell me, anyone know what the word is that the Bible uses for freedom? It's it. The same word appears in Antikva. Neodam Chofshi, right? So have a look in source where are we? So, what of the page? When Moses comes to give the details laws after the Ten Commandments, obviously the first thing he's going to talk about is how do you treat slaves? We've been slaves, how do we treat slaves? And the Torah says, if you have a slave, then you shall serve him for six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free. Right? So the biblical Hebrew word for freedom is not chemut, it's chovesh. And that is exactly what Naftalin Tzviyimba wrote in Atikva, Yud Am Chovshimba Ratzayim. Now tell me, why did the rabbis not call Pesach Zman Chovshenim? When a slave goes free, what does that freedom consist of? There's nobody to order him about. He can do what he likes. In fact, chafesh and chafetz probably mean similar. Lavotz means to, do, to want to do something. So if you're chafet, if you have chafesh, you can do whatever so that is what a slave gets. There's no one to order him about. He can do whatever he likes. Let me ask you a question. Is a society in which everyone can do what they like a free society? What is it? I'll exactly. A Jewish mess. Okay? So you understand what the Torah is, when the Torah uses the word chofesh, it's talking about individual freedom. The freedom a slave gets when he goes out. But it's not talking about a free society. And to have a free society, there has to be some basic order. The Torah describes at the end of the book of Judges, Bayamim ha'em ein in Israel, in those days, there was no king in Israel, there was no national government in Israel. Everyone was free to do whatever they liked. That was a condition of chaos. I'm convinced the chaos theory was invented to describe Jewish life, actually. This is something to know about. 
But Chofesh speaks of individual freedom, not of collective freedom. So what do you need for collective freedom? Laws, yeah? You need law. And that is exactly why Pesach is followed by Shavuot. That as part of their freedom, they had to receive the law. Because without that, they just had chaos instead of a free society. Now, when you and I read the story of the giving of the law, I read that as a pretty free offer, yes? If you look, before God reveals himself, this is the Ten Commandments you'll read in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 19, God says to Moses, go and tell the people, here's my offer. You've seen how I brought you out on eagles' wings and drawn you close to me, and now if you wish and accept, then you will be to me a sugulami kalamim, a very special treasured people to me. You will be a mamlachet kanim v'goy kadosh, a kinim nation. And he tells Moses, see if they agree. And the people say, and the text says that people say, yachdav, all together, whatever God says we'll do. And again, after the revelation of Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and then the detailed legislation. Look at Exodus 24, and again Moses repeats the laws, and they say, with one voice, whatever God says we'll do, and a third time, whatever God says, we will do and we will obey. So that sounds to me like a pretty free acceptance of the law. However, does any of you know the rabbinical commentary on Mount Sinai? Do you remember the story? The rabbis say, and this is in Marayim Shabbat, that the acceptance of the law by the Israelites was completely free. And this is how God proposed the deal. He suspend, lifted up Mount Sinai, suspended it over the Israelites, and said, if you agree and accept the law, fine. If not, whoops, there goes the mountain, and this will be your burial. Now, as the rabbis said, what kind of freedom is that? Now, to square the biblical view of what happened and the rabbinical view of what happened, you have to work out the following. God did not impose the law on the Israelites. But did, were they really free to refuse? Where were they? They were in the middle of the desert, and ways had not yet been invented. No Google Maps, no homeland, no rights, no security. They're entirely dependent on God in his pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and protecting them. How free were they at the time to say, goodbye, God, it's been nice knowing you. Thanks for getting this out of you. But from here on, we're on it. So the rabbi said that was not a really free acceptance of the law. Moses renews the covenant. That's what the book of Devarim is about, 40 years on, with the next generation, and he renews the covenant. Were they free when they accepted it at second? The answer is still not quite, because they hadn't yet crossed the Jordan. 
They hadn't yet entered the land. They hadn't yet conquered the land. They didn't really know it was theirs. They weren't entirely free. They needed God's help, and they couldn't really say no. What was the first moment that they could have accepted the covenant and been absolutely free when given the choice? What was the first moment? What has to happen first? They have to cross the Jordan? They have to enter the land? They have to win their battles? Are you with me? When's the first moment that they were free to actually say yay or nay? The answer is after the conquest of the land. After at the conclusion of Joshua's career as a leader. And this text that Rob quotes is from the last chapter of the book of Joshua. And I want you to look at it very carefully because it's a really, really extraordinary passage. Can you go back to it, Psalm 5? Yeah? Joshua reminds the people of this long journey they've taken since the days of Terah, the father of Abraham. And long ago, your fathers worshipped other gods, but I took Abraham, and so on and so forth. Now, can you see the next paragraph? Now fear the Lord. Can you see that? Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your, your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers are beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites. In other words, you're free to choose. Either follow Hashem, or you can follow the gods Terah worshipped or the gods of the Amorites. It's a totally free choice. What do the people say? Can you see the next paragraph? Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought our fathers out of Egypt from the land of slavery, etc., etc. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. What does Joshua say? <coughs> Joshua said to the people, forget it. You won't be able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He won't forgive your rebellion or sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn away and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after all he's been good to you. It's tough being a Jew. Forget it. You know, there are easier options out there. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourself and you have chosen to serve the Lord. Are you with me? I have never read anything more discouraging in my life. Do you want to serve the Lord? No, forget it. It's the tough option. This is what you do? No, please, don't. He tells them, you're free to live. And they say, no, we will serve the Lord. They say it again and again and again. And for Rob, this was the first moment of freedom. The first moment where they had the Lord, but they accepted it voluntarily because they could have walked. They had the land. They won their victory. They didn't need God anymore. They could have walked, but they said, no, we will send them. That, for God, is when freedom begins. The story that began even before the birth of Abraham, when idolatry was used to justify hierarchical societies in which some were rulers and others were slaves, that story only ends, not in the days of Moses, but when the Israelites finally 
achieve their own land. God has fulfilled every promise he gave them. And then Joshua says, now, do you really want to serve the Lord? And he gave them every chance to walk. And they said, no, we want to serve the Lord. Okay, with me? So that is why love takes this vast perspective. However, let me ask you a simple question. When it comes to obeying the law, are we really free to obey the law? I mean, you know, Do you see this issue? You know, um, I mean, the end, to have freedom, you have to have law. But you didn't actually opt to make the law. So, what does freedom consist in? Well, suppose that you really understand why the law is as it is. Because you talk, how many people are studying law in this room? I cannot believe there is only one Jewish <laughs> Two Jewish words. Gilbert, this, this is an all-time rap order. I only became a rabbi not to be a Jewish word. But yeah, if you understand the story behind the law, and if you understand the law itself, because you are a lawyer, then there is an alignment between what the law is and what you know it has to be. It's not something externally imposed on you, but it's something that flows from your understanding of the history of what brought us here and why, given that history, the law has to be the way it is. Are you with me? Now, I want you to just explain to me, let's go back to this word, charut, yes? Which means engraved. There are two ways you can make an inscription. You can write it with ink on paper or parchment, or you can engrave it in stone. What's the difference between those two things? Pardon? Yeah, well, in fade, the ink is something different to the parchment. It's super added to it. It's on the surface, which means it can be rounded out. Whereas an, an inscription that is engraved is not an additional imposition of a new material from the outside. It is of the stem itself, and it's engraved <coughs> into the stem, so it can't be rubbed off. And engravings last long, much longer than any writing under normal circumstances. Engraving doesn't add anything external. It becomes something internal to the stone. And that is what the rabbis understood as the supreme metaphor for the Jewish relationship to collective freedom of the world. If we understand why the Torah is as it is, why it has those laws about releasing slaves. Don't forget, slavery wasn't abolished until in America, until 1865 and after the Civil War. So it takes a long time to abolish slavery. But almost all the laws in the Torah for which a reason is given, the reason given is yeah, you, you should remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. So you understand why the law is as it is. 
And you understand that out of your own experience. And therefore, the law is some, not something alien to you. It's something that is engraved within you, within your heart, within your mind. And that was the metaphor that led the rabbis to coin this new word for freedom. If you have a look here in source, um, what is it? Source 13, you see? The Omar, says the mission in Pirkei Avot, that's the quote from Exodus. The tablets were work of God, the writing was God's writing, engraved on the tablets. Don't call it engraved, call it freedom. Because the only real free human being is one who studies Torah. Meaning, somebody who understands the law and, understand, and has made the law part of his own or her own self because you've internalized it, because you can see the history behind it, because you can see the logic behind it, that the people who experience slavery should never create a society in which those bad things can happen again. And once that law is engraved on you and within you, then your will and the law are one. And you're obeying the law, but you are obeying it freely. Now, there is a history to this. And I want you just to have a look here in Jeremiah chapter 31. Have you got source 15? It's a very, very interesting and important passage. The reason that Jews don't read this passage very much is because it's actually a key text in the history of Christianity. So Jews kind of get away from it. Does anyone know what the what New Testament is in Hebrew? Exactly. This, there's only one place in the whole of Tanakh where that phrase occurs, and it goes here. So we're going to read this, right? Can you see this? You read it in Hebrew or in English. In Egamim Baim Noom Hashem, the days of Hanim, says God, the Karati at Beit Israel, the Beit Yehuda, Brit Chadasha, I will make a new covenant with Israel. What is it? Loke Brit Asher Karati at Avodam Yomach Zikimi Yodam Otsi Amirets Mitzrayim, Asherim Ha'farmiyat Peritiva, Nochim Ba'altiva Noom Hashem. It won't be like the covenant I made with them in Egypt when I had to slap them out. They didn't want to leave. I had to shrug them out, and every time I gave them the law, they broke it. It won't be like that. In Zotabit, Israel. This will be the covenant that I will make with Israel. I will give my Torah within them, within their minds, in their souls. And I will inscribe it on their hearts. And then I will be their God, and they will be my people in total freedom. But what you with the world, etc., etc. That is what Jeremiah is saying. That the whole time the Israelites kept the Torah, 
Because God gave it and it's outside. All of that led to bad stuff, led to rebellions, idolatry, falling by the wayside. People didn't feel they were free within Jewish law. Says Jeremiah, the time will come when Jews will have a completely new relationship to their covenant with God because they will study the law so much and so deeply that it will be inscribed on their hearts, engraved in their personalities, and they will therefore fulfill the law because they know this is the way to create a free society. The end result was, and Jeremiah, of course, is the prophet when? Does he live? Yeah, a long time ago. He lived in the 6th century. He foresaw the Babylonian conquest, destruction of the Jerusalem, Babylonian exile. Who renewed Jewish life after the Babylonian exile? Ezra and Nehemiah did. Pretty much like in the US and that other world, they would, you know, be at our education seminar, you see it all described in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 8 and 9. And that's when Judaism evolved from being a religion based on kings and priests and power and became the religion that we know it to be the religion of synagogues and schools and shuls an education-based religion, where the first thing we have to learn is what is the law, and why is the law, and therefore it's not something alien to us, it's something inscribed within us. And it's very interesting that in the first century, Josephus says the following, can you see Psalm 16? And he's not referring to any of this rabbinical stuff, but he says, should any one of our nation be asked about our laws, he will repeat them as readily as his own name. The result of our thorough education in our laws from the very dawn of intelligence is that they are, as it were, engraved on our soul. Now, look at this. This is an extraordinary concept that reaches its final fruition with the rabbis in the third century, in other words, 16 centuries after the days of Moses, after this long historical experience of Jews, you know, semi-keeping and then lapsing and then losing and being sent to exile, and finally understanding what Moses was saying right at the beginning, which is, number one, every year, tell the story. So you never forget who you are, where you came from, and what, what battles you had to fight along the way. Number two, instruct your children, whether they are Chacham, Rasha, Tam, Mishena, Yudaya, Lishok, doesn't matter which of the four kids they are, educate their children so that those laws will be engraved on their souls, and then you will have law governed liberty i.e. the order that comes from law, but the freedom that comes from knowing this law, given who we are and where we're coming from, had to be like this because we had to create not a society of slavery, but a society of freedom. Are you with me? Now, this is a most radical concept 
the freedom I know. If you want to read the famous essay, it was delivered in 1957, by Isaiah Berlin's two, uh, what is it? Two concepts of liberty, negative liberty, positive liberty. The negative liberty, you will understand, is Hofisch. I said, he asked me four days before he died to officiate at his funeral. I, I, I tried to call him cheer up and work. Four days later he died. But I said at his Leviathan, I actually said, he was buried in Oxford, I did a funeral, and I said, Isaiah Berlin's work was a sustained commentary to the book of Exodus, which it is. But Chodesh was what Isaiah Berlin calls negative liberty. They'll need to tell him what to do. But he never developed a theory of positive liberty. Because he didn't like positive liberty, which he associated with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, volonté générale, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau's famous remark that if necessary, we will force them to be free, which is not the kind of freedom we want. So what the Torah is telling us is to have a free society there must be the rule of law. But that law must be something you identify with. Because you know the history of your people. You know what they endure. And you know, therefore, why the law is the antidote to that negative experience of exile and enslavement. In other words, freedom doesn't come easily. We take it for granted, and we shouldn't. Great civilizations have known freedom, and they have declined, and they have fallen, and they have lost their freedom because they took freedom for granted. The greatest civilization, I haven't watched the new television series. Have you watched it? Simon Sharma, Mary Beard, and what's it called? Civilizations. But you know what civilizations land up as? You know, ruins of ancient buildings. So the buildings last, but the civilization doesn't. The freedom was won, but it gets lost. The Torah gives us a formula for never, ever losing freedom. Number one, never forget your people's story. Number two, never forget to hand it on to your children. Number three, educate yourself and your children so you know that the law is not something imposed on you by some arbitrary, tyrannical deity, but it emerges out of the bitter experience of the past so that we can be so however bad the beginning of the story was, the ending is law governed liberty, a free world. Uh, sorry, uh, speeches are like mutzes, you know, you've got to watch the clock very carefully. <laughs> so, here it goes. Let me sum it up by saying this. People thought, you get the French Revolution, you get the Russian Revolution, you get free. Then the French Revolution was followed by the reign of terror, which meant the revolutionaries themselves lost their lives. The Russian Revolution, instead of inaugurating an era of freedom, introduced, you know, first Leninism, then Stalinist tyranny and totalitarianism, and maybe 10 million people lost their lives as a result. China under Mao, all the rest of it. Revolutionary freedom begins with dreams of utopia, but inevitably ends with nightmares of hell. The Torah offers us a tough approach to freedom. What Emmanuel Levitas called difficile liberté. You know, 
Freedom is hard work. <laughs> Sorry, it's hard work. And it's a good reminder that freedom is hard work. It's the work of memory, of telling the story, and of understanding the law. And that is why there are so many Jewish lawyers, because we are the only people that expects every single one of its children to be constitutional lawyers. That's what Torah education is all about. And that is why a free society means we have constantly to work for it, constantly to protect it, and it is all of our responsibility. It isn't something you delegate to governments, because the second you delegate freedom to governments, you lose it, because they begin to encroach on the law and the area of freedom becomes less and less. That is why so many hopes for freedom in the Dutch. Everyone expected the Arab Spring in 2011 to inaugurate a new era of freedom in the Middle East, instead of which we have this widening chaos of Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya and all the rest of it. We've seen some of the African countries, which were given democratic constitutions were at the end of the age of imperialism, but which have descended into chaos and terror. Freedom is really hard work. But somehow or other, over 4,000 years, Jews never lost that love of freedom and their commitment to it. Heinrich Heine said, ever since the Exodus, freedom has spoken in a Hebrew accent, which is a nice Nice way of putting it. And indeed, it wasn't we alone who were inspired by the story of the Exodus, because that was the inspiration of the Puritans in the English Revolution in the 1640s. It's what inspired the people who sailed off to America, the uh, Mayflower in 1620, the Arbella in 1630, when John Winthrop is talking about the Arbella, then telling them about this new promised land. He's quoting from Moses renewing the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The whole of American history was better. African American, uh, Pharaoh, go down Moses, down to Pharaoh's land and tell, uh, let my people go. African civil rights movement was based on the Exodus. That's what Martin Luther King is quoting in his great I Have a Dream speech. And that is how the Jewish story has inspired some of the great movements for freedom in the world. If I can sum it up with one very neat little story. And my favorite rabbi of all time is called Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Berdichev, the Bedinchiva Rav. You know, the Bedinchiva Rav is my favorite rabbi because he always found good things to say about Jews. Now, this is not a rabbinical habit, you know what I mean. I mean, the Benedicta is famous for his story. He's walking in the marketplace in Benedicta on Shabbos, and there is a member of his community in public smoking a cigarette. So the Benedicta Rob goes up to him and says, lovely, beautiful Jew, you mustn't do We must make Shabbos today. So he says, no, I know Shabbos. He said, beautiful. Shama, you must have forgotten that on Shabbos you can't smoke cigarettes. And he says, no, I know you can't smoke cigarettes. So he says, beautiful jewel. You must have so much on your mind that you completely didn't realize that you took out the cigarette and lit it and started smoking. You didn't know what you were doing, right? And the Jew says, no, I knew exactly what I was doing. 
And Bedin Shivarab turns his eye out to heaven and says, Rebunish alone. Where will you find a people like this in the world? You give them every chance to tell a lie and they still So the Bedin Shivarab said as follows The Tsar, even the Tsar is Russian. The Tsar in Russia has an army, he has a police force, he has secret police, and yet you can go into any house in Russia and find illicit alcohol that's been smuggled in. The Almighty has no army, he has no police, he has no secret police, and yet you can go inside any Jewish home on Pesach and you won't find one crumb of chametz. That is freedom that comes from voluntary acceptance of the law. That is the kind of freedom that hard work though it is, is absolutely invulnerable and will never die and will never be conquered. That is the kind of freedom to which we are called as Jews and which we recall ourselves every Pesach. And let us use that freedom, first, to stand proud and tall as Jews, and second, to work for the freedom and justice of all in the Amen. Amen.